This is Speaking Easy Theology with Chris Green. Well, Chris, we've recorded a few episodes recently, and we've talked a lot about aspects of how sin lies to us. We've talked a lot about how we get caught up in our own perspectives on things, which perhaps then leads us to today's conversation. Maybe obviously, maybe not obviously, but we've been talking offline about the need to have a conversation about truth. And and it, and it seems that truth is a sort of subject that actually probably the world really needs a conversation about. But even if the whole world doesn't, uh, we do. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I think this, I'm reading a book right now, Bernard Williams, Truth and Truthfulness. And it's, it's, it was written in the 90s. It was the last, he's a philosopher, was, I guess still is, a philosopher who, this was his last book. And mm. I, I kind of stumbled onto it and tracking down one thing or another about mm. Simon Weil's view of truthfulness. But be that as it may, he, he, he makes this observation right up front, right? That our, our world, the world that you and I, now know the, the modern slash postmodern mm. world is is a world kind of live at, at the at the crux of two cross pressures you've got the pressure of a desire for truthfulness or at least he says a reflex against being deceived that, that people do not want to be deceived and they have this the suspicion that they are being deceived that they are they're mm. being they're being taken in right and so there's a there's a desire for authenticity and again to, to live without you know, being preyed on. Mm. But there's also widespread suspicion about whether the truth can be known or what of the truth can be known yeah. and who can know it and so on. So he says that, you know, there's a, the push and pull of that is we desperately, desperately, desperately want the truth to be available, but we're not sure it is. And he, he thinks this, mm -hmm. you know, this is a condition. This is in some ways our condition that we all live in. And I, I mean, I haven't finished the book, but I, I think there's something, I think there's something to that. And certainly, mm -hmm. you know, Charles Taylor's analysis points to similar conclusions, I think, but yes. I mean, leave aside the philosophers writing about it. I think we all, we all feel that right day to day, right? Yeah. The, that we need the truth to be known. We need others to know it too, others to share it with us, to, to reflect back to us that yes, we're not crazy. This is in fact true. This is in fact real. And Williams makes this connection between truth and trust, right? That we, we need to be able to trust, but for there to be trust, there has to be truth and there has to be truthfulness. So truthfulness referring to our capacity and response to the truth mm. and trust being, you know, then the outgrowth of truthful people responding to the truth. And I, I think he's right that we need it. And I think he's right that we don't get much of it. <laughs> and mm. he's describing what I would say is the, and, and I think Taylor is as well. They're describing the state of things in the world they know as elite philosophers. 
Yeah. I think you and I actually know a world within that world. We know a subculture of evangelical Christianity, predominantly white evangelical Christianity that is determined largely by a reaction against those conditions. Right. So we've Mm -hmm. talked about this before, but I think in that kind of larger paradigm, there is a, a loss of enchantment. You know, this is, this is Taylor's argument, right? That we, that we live in a time and and he's just following on from Weber that we live in a time of disenchantment. But I think again, the circles I move in, the the people that I know, they're not disenchanted at all. (laughs) If if anything, they're over enchanted. (laughs) They're, they're carried away with the reaction against that disenchantment, Mm. or at least that's so on some fronts, on some fronts, right? Maybe not across the board. Again, the larger condition, the kind of um, the global condition is a kind of disenchantment and a loss of confidence in the truth. But the, the immediate context in which I live and move and have my being is an overconfidence, right? Mm -hmm. An exaggerated sense of certainty about having the truth. Mm -hmm. And I, so I, I, I think this is, and I've been thinking about it now for a little while. We talked about it Sunday night in the Bible study. I, I, I think there's a, we're, we're screaming for the Lord to show us what the truth is and how to be truthful people. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. kind of where it begins. Like we, we're talking in, again, people in my world talk a lot about the truth but very, very little about being truthful. Mm. And I think that's where I would want the weight to come down in our conversation. Like what, what does it mean? It's one thing, you know, Kim Fabricius, who I I never met personally, but he, he was a blogger that showed up on Ben Meyer's blog. He would, he'd be a guest from time to Mm. time. And it was always fascinating. If if you, if you've never, if you've never read anything by him, I, I highly, highly recommend him. But he has this, he would occasionally just drop a guest post where he would just have, you know, kind of aphorisms and one-liners that mm. that he would, would share, that Ben Myers would share. And one of them, I'll never forget, and I can't quote it exactly, but he, he said there's, the, there's, there's a world of difference between someone who talks shrilly about the truth mm. and someone who talks humbly about being truthful. Right? There, there's a world of difference between someone who's you know always going on about the truth and someone who's want who wants desperately to be truthful and I, I think that that's really where I want mm. us to to dwell today right we, we've we have plenty of people <laughs> again who will will shout from the rooftops that we live in a world that isn't committed to the truth you know that we're I've heard postmodernism condemned, expressive individualism condemned. There, 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 there's plenty of that in in the world as, as I know it, but not very much talk about. God, let me be truthful. The yeah, see, I mean, we have a sort of in in our worlds, perhaps. I mean, maybe it's true in everybody's world, almost like a niche 
disenchantment that that we mm-hmm. we have disenchantment in in very particular ways in very particular areas and often often designed to suit ourselves <laughs> and, uh, i i'm thinking as you're saying this uh, i remember years ago reading Hauravas and Willimans resident aliens and being captured as a young minister by their language of the pastoral ministry as truth telling and mm-hmm. not not truth talking <laughs> to yeah. be clear in terms of how it relates to this conversation um, and I I wonder if you know you used the phrase a few moments ago about the capacity for truth actually mm-hmm. and I was thinking as you said that I was thinking about us as containers of truth and, and so it's so there's yeah i mean what a, i mean i i think tell talking about truth is different than someone being truthful and and yeah. is there a way is there a way as i'm trying to work out this in, in an image to see if i'm asking the right question to you but is there a way to be surrounded by the possibility of the truth and also a way to embody truth in such a way that you are truthful. And, mm-hmm. and at some level, what you're describing or aching for is a sort of embodied or perhaps incarnated truthfulness in us rather than just an ability to talk about truth as concept. Am I, am I tracking mm-hmm. with what you're scratching out there? Yeah, yeah. No, I, think, I think so. I mean, it's the... So so many so much of this is new to me in, in terms of I'm still looking for the right language exactly so this mm-hmm. this may not be where I settle but I think I think it shows up in the way that we read scripture that we mm-hmm. read the scripture we proof text it so we we are looking for individual truths that we can wield or use. Mm-hmm. And individual truths that stay put, so to speak, right? So there's a we find a reading of you know Proverbs four or Psalm ninety one or Isaiah fifty three. We find a truth there that we now can designate and mm. and put to use whenever we need that particular truth. We 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 have these texts or these readings of mm. texts that are kind of stored, shelved, labeled, and we can, we can pull them down and put them to use whenever we need them to win an argument, whenever we need to, to, to pin someone down or to drive home a point. And I think that's an untruthful way of relating to the truth. Of course, I believe scripture is true, but I think, I think its purpose is to make us true. Right. Now, Paul, when he says that scripture is inspired and is useful for the making, the equipping, the forming mm. of the person of faith, I think that's something very different from the Bible is full of truths that you can mine or that you can resource. And I think something happens to us when we become the kinds of people who engage with reality. I think something has happened to us and then continues to be reinforced in us when we become the kinds of people who engage with reality in that utilitarian way Mm. where the truth 
is something that's on my side in an argument, mm-hmm. not someone who has called me to live with this person I, I'm, I'm in dispute with. Mm-hmm. And being truthful has to do with answerability to Jesus. I mean, this mm-hmm. is how a Christian must think of it. Being truthful has to do with not my will, but your will be done. And it's not, I mean, that that's, that's the heart of it, but I think it, it, it involves honesty, but it's much more than honesty. Like to, to be a truthful person is, is certainly not simply to say whatever comes to your mind, right. <laughs> or to, or to feel the need to make sure your opinions are stated, right. That that's not, that's not truthfulness. Like truthfulness yeah. has, has to do with, openness to the will of God, a readiness to accept the reality for what it is rather than what you might want it to be. Mm. And I think there's a, there's a close connection, not only between truth, truthfulness and trust, but also between truth, truthfulness and justice, justice Mm. having to do with, you and and my other neighbors receiving what is due to them and again in our particular subcultures i i i don't think it's an accident that we're we're far more interested in righteousness in in personal moral terms than we are in justice in communal covenantal terms so truth then becomes about what I need to know to be the righteous person or what you need to know to be the righteous person or what I need you to know to make you the righteous person rather than truth and truthfulness being what makes it possible for us to live in the peace that comes when we relate to one another justly. Mm-hmm. When I do justice for you, that that I think is the heart of truthfulness my concern is the will of god which is your good mm. your good is my neighbor so there's a again just just trying to reflect to you there's a there's a de-weaponizing of truth that we're talking about i i think in there mm-hmm. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. i couldn't help but think of paul's metaphors in ephesians 6 that the truth is a belt. It is something you wear. It's not a weapon. Mm. Right? And um, mm. it, it's something mm. that kind of, I mean, can I say it, it, always you can stretch a metaphor, right? But, uh, but you can also stretch it too far. But, but the, it, as a belt, it's holding everything together. But yeah. it's, not, it's not lost on me that Paul's metaphor in Ephesians 6, there isn't actually any violence in it, even though it's an armor metaphor. It's like once you've right. got all this stuff on, you just you stand firm, right? And right. Right. but there's this call. I mean, again, as as we're searching for the right language, it's I think about one of the pieces I th- that drew me to Harvard and Villeman's work when I was younger is that they talk about truth as an enacted ministry. Right, uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 they talk about the pastor as a truth teller. He's not yeah. somebody who just tells it, but somehow lives it, enacts it. Uh, you know, follows Jesus in that, and and is 
and, and that what the truth starts to do is, is sometimes tell an awkward story. It's sometimes tell exactly the story that we don't want to tell, uh, but, but, but works it out in a way that the net result is we are shaped more like Jesus. And, and I think what I see in a lot of my upbringing is that truth truth telling never looks like Jesus. I think that's what you're speaking to just now. It Absolutely. always moves us to become uglier somehow and less pastoral, uh, less caring for the least of these. The, and therefore, by implication, justice and truth don't walk hand in hand together. I think that's been my experience anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if, at least much of the time when we when we talk about being truthful or telling the truth, we do mean something close to it's really important that you say what you think. Yeah. And it's really important that you say what's right, no matter who it hurts. Yeah. Right. We mean something like that, something close mm-hmm. to that. And yeah, I, I think that's the way we talk about truth when we're not truthful people. <laughs> mm. Right. Like mm. that, that's, that's, that's a, an, a, a satanic relation to the truth. Mm. It, it, it's a use of the truth against the truth. It's, it's like right. truthiness. <laughs> yep. Yep. I've used this phrase yep. elsewhere before, truthiness. It's sort of like, it, it looks at it, if you squint and look from just the right angle, it kind of appears truthy, but you know, it's not, it's fact, definitely not truthful, you know. <laughs> right. Oh, absolutely. Well, it, it's interesting you bring up Ephesians 6 and, and Paul, because I, I talked about this on Sunday night too. I, I, I think I, I'm not sure kind of when I stumbled into this reflection on truthfulness, like what brought me to it exactly. But I think it was working last weekend or the weekend before working through first and second Timothy and coming on first Timothy six. So let's talk a bit about that. If mm. you've got it there in front of you, it's, it's a yeah. very, very familiar passage, right? The, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith passage and also the love of money is the root of all evil passage. Mm-hmm. And I, I want you, if you would pick up, just pick up in verse three, if you've got mm-hmm. it and, and read that for us. And I, I kind of want to talk through what I, what I'm starting to realize that, or at least what I think is happening in this mm-hmm. text and how it relates to this conversation we're having now. Yeah, sure. So this is verse three. It says, whoever teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that is in accordance with godliness is conceited, understanding nothing, and has a morbid craving for for controversy and for the disputes about words. From these come envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling amongst those who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Okay, of course, let's stop right there for now. We're gonna we're gonna keep going, but so I, as I recall, you know, mem- memory is a funny thing. So I, I don't <laughs> really know where when I came on this, but it hit me at some point that we have here a a kind of mapping or genealogy of what goes wrong. Once you start 
fighting about words, you know, disputing mm. about words, right? And there's this this strange juxtaposition here, not strange, but the startling juxtaposition between verse three and verse four. So Paul says, mm. you must agree, right? You you must help people come to see the wisdom in the sound words of Jesus, the teaching mm. that that actually accords or resonates or is attuned to godliness. Right? Mm. So Jesus teaching draws us into a share in godlikeness, right? The, the more we follow the way of Jesus, the more we are caught up in the movements of the spirit. And so Jesus words are sound. Jesus words are trustworthy. And, you know, think about our conversation about catechesis. Think about the ways in which, as we've discussed in the very same circles that we've been describing today and challenging today, the there's not a lot of respect for Jesus, the teacher for Jesus, the healer. Yes. For Jesus, the savior. Yes. But not Jesus, the rabbi, not Jesus, the teacher. And, and, and yet here Paul's emphasis is Jesus words are the words that give us life that, yeah. that direct us into the life of God. Those who break with that are conceited, right? They're, they're carried away with themselves. They're carried away with their own, their unsound words, but their own patterning of words, like their own ways of speaking. Mm. And they, under, they, they understand nothing, right? So that, that's the first drift. Like we find ways of talking in which we're explaining away what Jesus said I mean, yeah. and insisting that, no, 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 what Jesus really meant <laughs> is this or that, right? And then it leads to a craving for controversy, or as, as you can tell, I'm an American saying this, that controversy and dispute <laughs> about words, right? And I mean, I don't want to be mean-spirited about anything, but I think it would be pretty easy for an outsider to look at you know, what we're broadly calling them the dominant forms of American evangelicalism and say, those are people that like to argue about words. <laughs> like, mm. like those are people who are, I don't know. I, there, there are lots of ways in which it looks like we're pretty addicted to controversy. Yeah. And I, I think that's a te- always a telling, it's a symptom, right? When, mm. when disputatiousness and, and a love for controversy shows up, I mean, that's a fever you can't ignore. Like something yeah. is sick in the body, right? And, and what, what, we, what we find next, right, in this, this kind of, you know, Paul's description of the ailment is that, that that kind of love for controversy, or as the NRSV has it, the morbid, morbid craving, this kind of diseased longing mm-hmm. for controversy, like that leads to, all kinds of community destroying sins, envy, dissension, slander, suspicion, and wrangling, right? That this, all of those are the price the community pays when you and I personally become addicted yeah. to arguing about the words we want to use. I want to say it like this. And if you won't say it like that, then the community 
is is put mm-hmm. under the pressure of our dispute, uh, under under the pressure of mm-hmm. our our fight. And I mean, think about what's happened to many of our churches. Many, many, many of them are born out of dispute. They're born. They're yeah. you know. Think about how many of our churches come directly from church splits, and those yeah. church splits were the result of people fighting about words. And mm. again, there is a, Paul is already, not already, he's going to say in this passage, I fought the good fight, but we often, we fail to realize, right, that there are some fights that aren't good to fight. <laughs> there's a good fight to fight. And there's a way of fighting the good fight. There are good ways to fight the good fight. And then there are bad ways to fight the good fight. And there are no good ways to fight the bad fight. <laughs> right. And I, I don't, man, in a conversation about truthfulness, I have to be really careful. I hope I'm not being carried away. But I think when I think about my, my family, and I mean this in the broadest sense, not just my kin, but the the people who taught me the faith, the people with whom I've lived it, you know, the people that I would be grouped with if researchers were studying us, you know, I, I think we are addicted to controversy. And I think all of this, the envy, the dissension, the wrangling, I think that's our story. And I think it, it all stems from just a, a loss of truthfulness, you know, because what, how that ends, as Paul says, and I, I want to get your response here. I don't mean to go on forever, but the end of that kind of disease is, to be left depraved mm. and destitute mm. as he it, the NRSV has bereft of the truth. The truth has died. Our capacity for the mm. truth is deadened. We're, we've mm. lost our sensitivity to the truth, but I, I think that I love the King James destitute of the truth because it's a, a kind of reminder that you can, you can kind of waste your heart and mind on controversy. And then you, you, you don't, you lack what's necessary for truthful conversation, for real communion, because you've mm-hmm. wasted all of your energy on, you know, false communion on, on disputes yeah. and arguments. And that leads to this imagining, this fancying that godliness is a means of gain. And I, I think I think what he's naming here is not just we're going to be godly and it's going to be financially, you know, yeah. beneficial for us. We're, we're going to prosper. I think I think he means it reduces the faith to idolatry. That you you start to imagine now once you've kind of wasted your energy with arguments and you've your community has has been shattered by the dissension and the base suspicions that that lead to, you know, but this gasoline on the fire of our disputes, then what you're left with is God himself mm-hmm. is just there to be used. Yeah. And, and godliness is reduced to what we think we need to make life what we think it should be. Yeah. Right. We, we seek godliness only because we think that's going to give us the leverage we need to, to form the world yeah. into 
the image we have of it. And gosh, I really need to be careful, but it's hard for me. It's hard for me not to think that's where we are. That's what we are doing. And, you know, last thing I'll say, and then I want you to get your response. Like I, I'm sure, I mean, I know, obviously I would see the world very differently if I had been raised elsewhere, if I had gone to different schools, if I had attended different churches, you know, I, but the fact is I didn't go to an elite Ivy school, Ivy league school. I, I didn't attend mainline churches. Like I've grown up in a particular world or, or set of worlds. And I, I'm not naive. I, I understand that there, there are deep problems elsewhere amongst other people, <laughs> but those aren't the ones I'm confronted with as a person, as a dad, as a husband, as a, a bishop. Like th- those are not the ones that I'm accountable for. And, mm. you know, I don't know what's happening in my neighbor's house, but I think what's happening in our house <laughs> is, is exactly what's being described here. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not lost on me by any stretch that this text is the better part of, what, 1970 years old or something like that. And, uh, you know, and, and, and you're reading it going, hmm, yeah, <laughs> this is, it could, it could be the New York Times. Yeah. I, I, I mean. Well, in, in the New York Times, but it also could be, you know, whatever our denominational magazine is. Yes, yes. That's the point I'm saying. Like, there's that larger context in which I think it's true. But even in the smaller context, that that subculture that is a reaction against the larger culture, it's it's perhaps even truer. Yeah, well, no, definitely, definitely. And it strikes me that that it's, it's describing a form of disenchantment it, mm-hmm. it's describing mm-hmm. and perhaps the most dangerous form and, and again i want to be careful of over speaking too but perhaps the most dangerous form of disenchantment that when we remove the words of truth of jesus what do we put in its place uh, what do yeah. we you know like th- there is no vacuum here so so it, you know paul appears to be talking like the images that we've removed truthfulness and replaced it with controversy and i I mean that's my goodness it resonates with me with me so strongly actually that because i think that's what we're we're seeing in at some level the micro and the macro level there's so many subjects that we think if we can just nail our statement on this this immense pressure uh, on uh, pastors of the sort of context that we're talking about to have, you know, what's your position on the kind of controversy du jour? How are you going to respond to it? And all of this is very subtly moving our our capacities in, in what I think we will ultimately all confess are very, very dangerous ways. Uh, this language of this bereftness of truth, though, I know that that language interests you. So perhaps you want to, in some sense, perhaps you want to dig into that a little bit. I mean, semantically, if this sets you up, this is this is this notion of not having something. Right? Mm-hmm. Loanida is a great semantic language scholars sort of describe it, and they and they sort of say, but but wait, it's not simply that you don't have something. It's actually that you had something. Mm. 
and mm-hmm. it has somehow it is somehow no longer in your possession. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's an interesting in terms of this conversation, Paul's use of language here of of having yeah. had no longer possessed. Is that something you want to explore yeah. a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think that's that's what I'm saying when I think I think the image here. I think what Paul is describing is when you give your energy to to controversy. <laughs> is that, <laughs> Sorry. Is that Sorry, this is this is a word for me. I was educated by Americans, and this is there's a few words that I I'm never sure which context I'm saying them correct in. But but so I always no, no, try no. and imagine, you know, how does how how would how would my my English grandfather have said it? So I can say, I, yeah, let's just go with our own words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, that there's something about when you give your energy to that, and and again, I w- I want to be as specific as I can here. I mean, I'm talking about. Of course, in social media, but I also mean mm-hmm. in in just the way you process the world. And I, I think yeah. so. Simone Weil in in the need the need of roots or the need for roots. It can be translated either way. I think she mm-hmm. there's a section, and I wish we had time. I would read it to you, but she talks about the need of truth is the most sacred need of the human being. Right? That we need the truth even more than we need bread and water. Like we, we, we absolutely mm, need the truth. Beautiful. And therefore she, she goes on from there to say, and therefore those people who bear false witness, those people who keep the truth from us are the worst kinds of criminals. They're the worst. Mm. I mean, they're, they're, they're committing. She doesn't use this phrase, but she, that to, to keep people from the truth or to keep truth from people is a crime against humanity, we could say. Mm-hmm. And she even, she gives this example, and I, I'm, I'm staggered by this, and make sure I don't forget to come back to James, and I know I'm going to have to leave in like 10 to 15 minutes, but we've got we to stay on this for a few, <laughs> a few minutes. But so she, she gives this example of Maritain, who's a Catholic theologian of the time, who had said somewhere that in the ancient world, there was no there was no indication that anyone considered slavery to be unnatural something to that effect mm-hmm. and and she says she quotes a line from aristotle and in greek and says well clearly aristotle says that in his day there are some who say or maybe even many who say that slavery is unnatural and a great wickedness and she said maritain should know this like there, there's no way he, he should be in the position he's in and not know this passage in Aristotle. Therefore <laughs> he should be brought to court and this evidence presented against him. And then he should be imprisoned or forced into hard labor. <laughs> and we laugh about it, right? We laugh, but we don't laugh about imprisonment for people who are you know, addicted to drugs or selling drugs or, you know, people who rob the bank or people who commit um, violent crimes, all, all of which, I mean, I don't, mm. I, I think we need to rethink um, crime and punishment, obviously, in our world. But the point she's making in her peculiar way is no crime is worse than this, though. The crime of mm. misrepresenting the truth for people. Now, I think in his, I mean, she's, she's almost certainly, I, I, I would, 
I wouldn't mind being the defense lawyer for Maritain in this case. Right? I, mean, I, don't, I, think, I think perhaps he wouldn't end up in a labor camp mm-hmm. in spite of what they thinks. But, but her point to me holds that we do have a responsibility. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to be people, and this is what James is saying about if you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be answerable for your teaching. Mm-hmm. And, I I think this is tied to, and, and Bernard Williams brings this up in his book too. It's a chapter I just looked at this morning a bit, that we've here, and he, here he's talking about kind of modern Western societies. We've bought into this idea that free speech should mean a marketplace of ideas without any regulations at all. Like mm. on on how you speak, and that if you if you have a kind of completely unregulated ideas market, that what will emerge is truth. And he says, I mean, this is long before Twitter slash X. <laughs> Bernard Williams is like, yeah, that's crazy. That's not how it's going to work. Right? That's not what it means to be human. That's not how human communities survive and thrive. And I, I think. Paul already knew that, right? It's you, your speech has to be tethered. It has to be yoked to the speech of Jesus, or it's going to lose its truthfulness, right? The salt is going to lose its saltiness. The light is going to lose its lightness. Mm -hmm. And what I think Paul is describing here to Timothy is when you are engaged, wasting your energy in dispute, you, you lose the capacity to hear, to feel, and to speak the truth. You can't think it, you can't speak it, you can't resonate with it, you can't respond to it because you're you're wasted on half-truths and lies mm-hmm. yeah. and the shadow of truths rather than the, the face of them. And I, I think that's what happens in a culture in which it, there's no answerability for the people. There's no responsibility, there's no... What's the no accountability? That's the word I'm looking for. There's no accountability for the people who are responsible for the truth. So, yeah. the, and I mean, we're living through this right now, not to get into the weeds, but what we're living through in this, these trials about Donald Trump and his businesses and Donald Trump and the election, like those are trials that are that have been forced, I think, by a kind of social economy mm-hmm. in which we don't think people are responsible to be truthful about their money or mm-hmm. about their accomplishments. Like, oh, man, again, I know this is, these are choppy waters to change the metaphor, but I, I think this is where we are and it's why mental health issues are exploding at every turn and every demographic, right? That, that children now, an, an ungodly number of children are experiencing anxiety and depression. Why? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's because we are bereft of truth. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and again, in the broadest way and in, and in narrower circles, we, we have lost touch with what it means to be truthful people and out of that addiction 
to dispute. And, and this is part of why I'm trying to be so careful is that I don't want this to be disputatious. Like, I, like even bringing up these, I think we have to bring up concrete examples so that it's clear what we're talking about, right? that we're naming what truly is going on, but how to do that in a way that doesn't just circle right back into yes. now we're, we're in another, we're in controversy again, and I'm just sharing my opinion on the controversy, right? But the, the, the thought that, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I should just trust you to save me from this, but I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you're describing to me, and, and I, I'm not trying to just keep beating the same word, but I think it's this, I think they're connected. It, this I, I want to keep this language of disenchantment on the table. Like what mm-hmm. in in the text from Simone that you read? I, again, when we're not willing to, and I, I'm just leaning into her example here. But when we're not willing to imprison someone in hard labor camp mm-hmm. for their lack of truthfulness, yes. And again, I agree with you on all this stuff. But it says something about us. You know what we punish says something about us. What we're well, scared of and how we need to control our society says something about us. And the fact that you know there are things we just will not pursue, and invariably, like you, I mean, there's there's numerous from Holocaust denying right the way on. Yes, yeah, yeah. That, that's a better example. Let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, there's huge, huge notions of of just refusal to engage with truth that actually are profoundly dangerous to us as people when we choose mm. to live at that level of of untruthfulness. Yes, if that scratches yeah. what you think. That's it, and this that's a much. I mean, that's a much better, much better example. The Holocaust denial is a better example because it does steer clear of this the, our present controversies, but. I was listening to the Rest is History podcast yesterday. It's an older episode, but I only heard it yesterday about the Midford sisters. And I, I had, I'd never heard of them, but they're kind of high society sisters in the UK. And perhaps you, perhaps you know them, but they're fascists, right? And, uh, you know, quite literally friends, dear friends of Hitler himself, right? And unity Mitford in, in particular. And there's a, there's a story about one of the sisters. I think it was 1989. Don't quote me on the year, but I think it was 1989, but it was, it was definitely within my lifetime. She went on the BBC and they asked her about the Holocaust, knowing that she, she and her family had been fascists. And again, yeah. cl- close to Hitler and other leading Nazis. And she said, well, I don't, I don't believe 6 million Jews were killed. Like that number, that's just too many. But even if it was only 1 million, that's still, you know, an evil thing. And you get this, like, she's acknowledging, right, the wickedness of it. She's acknowledging the horror, but she's also denying. But there's an untruthfulness even in that admission. Yeah. And the, and. I guess what's striking me about it is that we live in a world in which we put that kind of thing on the news and we stomach it because Mm -hmm. people are famous enough, because people are wealthy enough, because it's interesting enough. Like it gives us something to talk about. I don't know, but there's something about the, 
you know, I, I, I went yesterday, Julie and I went last night to watch Killers of the Flower Moon. And then I went back to the book last night after I got home. And I had started but never finished the book. And I determined to finish it after I'd seen the movie. And I was reading late last night. And he made this point. David Gann made this point that so much of the trouble around the Osage murders had to do with the way that the press reported it. And the very end of the film, Scorsese points out that when, when Molly dies, nothing is said about the murders. Mm. So one dimension of this is, and I think a major dimension of it is, we live in, in a world of news and news commentary in which we just stomach day after day after day in a 24-7 cycle. We just stomach people not telling us the truth, and we know they're not telling us the truth, and they get by with it because we have an economy in which that is not only allowed, but in some ways is an engine for business, right? That advertisers are are presenting their products in those shows because we are at some level entertained by, even if, you know, even if we're entertained only by being infuriated by it, we're still, our attention is captivated by, you know, bad people saying untrue things or half true things and getting by with it. And, And again, this is not a, this is not a call. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to back Simone Veil on the call for hard labor for untruthful <laughs> yeah. people, but I do want answerability and accountability for them. And I want it for myself. I want it for myself as, you know, a minister, as, as a friend, as a parent, like we, we absolutely have to have it because I don't want to be bereft of the truth. I don't want to lose that capacity and, and maybe where we kind of need to wrap this conversation up is how do we break our habit for contract? Like, how do we recover truthfulness? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and maybe it's good to end a conversation like this shorter than a normal conversation so that we don't fall into the trap of doing the, the very thing of talking too much about it uh, mm-hmm. and and. But I think those are the questions that you're asking and perhaps the questions that need to return to how do we how do we find spaces where we can start to learn to tell the truth again? Uh, yes. I mean the sacraments may point us in the right way. <laughs> they they we may we may find the need to find spaces of confession again, perhaps. And and I think that's I, I think that's it for me at least. Like I think the sacrament of confession in particular. I was talking with Bishop Mike last night about about this and he, you know he reminded me of that, right? It's mm-hmm. it's in the confession that our we kind of return to the words right kind of in th- three senses. The confession of the creed or profession of the creed where we're saying this is what I believe. These are the words that I've been given. The confession that's talked about in this passage, that Jesus makes the good confession before Pilate, which is a a kind of acknowledgement of the lordship of Jesus, right? So it's a confession in the the sense of I'm staking my life on his way of life. I'm staking my life on, on 
the pattern of the cross of, of the passion and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then the confession of my sins, right? Mm. So can I confess that Jesus is Lord? Can I confess that this is the faith that's been delivered to me? And can I confess my sins and, and know that in confessing them, this one whom I confess as Lord is, is forgiving and healing mm. me. I think that that's where our words get yoked again to his words and yeah. the addiction to, to controversy gets broken off of us. So as we're wrapping up, I want to just kind of direct everybody to two passages and we, we won't work through them in, in at length. We can't, but I do think they're essential for thinking about truthfulness, at least for me. Ooh. One is the end of this passage. We've started in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. What Paul tells Timothy is that you have to shun all of this, this idea that godliness is going to lead to gain. Yeah. You cannot love money. You you can't love money specifically as it relates to your ministry, right? This is not yes. just a generalized statement about, about ec- economics. He's talking specifically to mm-hmm. someone, a man of God, who's called to a life of ministry, do not think that that's going to lead to mm. the kind of prosperity the world around you tells you you should want and and, and yes. that you should pursue. Shun mm. all that. Mm. You have to pursue righteousness slash justice and think back to the difference we made earlier. Godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. So the good fight of the faith. And I, you know, two things about that line, fight the good fight of the faith. The ways in which we've heard that line growing up, fighting the good mm-hmm. fight of faith is about me standing for my principles. It's about me mm-hmm. standing up for what's right in society. Me insisting yeah. that you as my neighbor, especially you know, my Muslim neighbor or my Catholic neighbor or my Jewish neighbor or my atheist neighbor, like you mm-hmm. must except these are the principles on which our country was found. Like that kind of fighting the good mm. fight becomes about controversy and dispute. Mm. But what the text actually <laughs> tells you is the only way in which you can fight the good fight of the faith mm. is to do so in ways that are marked by faith and love and endurance. You're suffering, mm. you're long suffering, you're suffering long and you're doing it with gentleness. And that that throws my attention back to James 3, a passage that that Ed, Bishop Ed, is, is kind of over the years many times directed my attention back to it. That we, mm. we have to avoid bitter envy and strife. And we must not, verse 14, so James 3, 14, we must not lie against the truth. Mm-hmm must not lie against the truth. And it's, I mean, that's the King James phrasing, but this, this way in which we're using the truth untruthfully. And, and this is, Mm. I think the heart of the matter, like we are either going to become people who stop using the truth against the truth. We stop using the truth untruthfully, including the truth of scripture untruthfully Mm. and, and learn again, the truthfulness that only is known in the way of Jesus, only when we're yoked to him and to his meekness, his meekness and lowliness of heart. Like without that, 
without that meekness and lowliness of heart, we will not be truthful, no matter how many truths we marshal. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, goodness me, like, do not be false to the truth. You're James 3.14. I mean, that's a word. <laughs> that is, that is a word for us on on multiple multiple levels like we we talked about like our particular form of christianity our particular corner of the the christian world but but as you're saying that i can't think of a level in in my world that that's not an appropriate charge to hear from the text the scripture right now that and and i would i would say it's probably true for most of us that are in the English speaking world, I mean, that's our sickness, isn't it? It's, it's mm-hmm. how do I, how do I make the truth be what I need it to be to endorse the way that I want to tell the story of, 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 of my world and the way that I want to ensure that other people see it. Um, yeah. You know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of left something like that hits me and my prayer often, Chris is one of, thankfulness for scripture but also an awareness that when i hear a phrase like what is it to be false to the truth mm-hmm. i tell me if this is if this is helpful but i instantly know what that means and then i'm hoping i'm quick enough to catch myself to think but what if that instant reaction to in me to go i know exactly what that is is exactly the problem <laughs> that, that so many of us instantly know what to be false to the truth is, but the truth that we're talking about being false to, it's not actually the truth. It's, yeah. it's all the things that you were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's right because I, and, and let's, let's set it, set it down here and maybe pick it up again at some point. But I think, yes, we think of the truth as, me saying what I really think. And that's just not what the truth is. Like the mm-hmm. truth is God's will for my neighbor and for me. That's what's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. And what I really think matters in prayer, in confession, in spiritual direction, but it does not matter in mm-hmm. the way that I love and that I'm called to love. Hmm. And that that has to be broken off of us. And I, I think the reason we get addicted to controversy and dispute is that we don't want to have any responsibility to love our neighbor if we don't have space to share our opinions about what it means and how it should be done. Hmm. And if I know anything about the way of Jesus, it's that that will leave us estranged from ourselves that that will make us into into cancerous people right people who are destructive right who are who are eating up our neighbors devouring them and we we desperately need to be safe from that Mm. so lord's lord have mercy yeah lord (laughs) mercy well thank you Thank you, Chris. Um, I feel like in a podcast recording where we are talking about truth, we should mention that your dog joined us 
during the recording because there's some moments where the dog passes our microphone in this recording grumbling <laughs> and i don't want oh. people praying for you in the wrong way <laughs> oh absolutely yes as if yeah yeah, yeah he's uh <laughs> he's quite upset about he's i don't know that he loves controversy but our neighbor's dogs certainly do and so doggy <laughs> is caught in those disputes yet again this morning <laughs> And now I'm I'm going to be. You do need to pray for me because I I have a I have a haircut appointment that I'm going to be late for now because we were recording this podcast. But oh well. Um, all all jokes aside, thank you for talking with me about it, David. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Mm-hmm.